Welcome to the Westside Barbell Podcast. Today, Lou, we're going to go back in history a little bit and educate some people on the original Westside Barbell from Culver City to where you got the conjugate method from and then to modern day Westside, if that's okay with you. Sounds great. Um, Lou, who was Westside Barbell in Culver City and how did you ever find out about him? Uh, well, I, I went in the Army in uh, 1966. You know, I, I, when I was 14, I could squat 410. Now it's 1967, I can still squat 410. And I did it at 140, but now I was about 155 and made no progress. And I was a magazine called Muscle Power Builder that they sold in in, in the Army, and I bought it, and they talked about it was like Barbell. And Bill P. Des West was your originator, Pat Casey, George Friend, Bill Thunder, lots of guys in there. And, uh, you know, they were they made the, they made the sport actually famous back then. And uh, so I started following their methods back then. Um, because uh, they were they were light years ahead of everybody else. Yeah. They were doing rack pulls and stand on boxes, box squatting. Because uh, the box squat, I said, well, my squat hadn't gone anywhere uh, in, in years. So I said, well, I got nothing to lose. I bought, so I tried to box squat, <clears throat> and then uh, because for years I squatted four ten, but in three months box squatting, I took a squat. I did four four fifty. Another three months, I did five hundred, and I went on to make six sixty five in a meet. With no gear, a two-hour win. There was yeah. no gear at all, not in wrist wraps. All right, and uh, it, was the, it was two box squats, and that's what fascinated me by him. And my friend Roger Eastept as well was able to travel. He went to Westside Barbell, and he took. He was a weight class above me, and I would always beat him. But Roger all of a sudden jumped from like sixteen hundred to eighteen hundred. I go, how did you do it? He go, oh, I went to Westside Barbell. So I asked him what he did, and he told me it's exactly what I was following in the magazine. So that's how it all originated. How big of a a shock was not a, maybe shock not the right word, but how you were training to seeing this? Did it seem ludicrous at the time, or did it make sense straight away? Well, it didn't matter if it made sense because desperate men do desperate things. And after you know squatting, you know for uh, five years, four ten, I had nothing to lose. Yeah. So that's why I tried it, and lo and behold, it worked. And it also, like box squatting and what they did, took my deadlift in basically two years from when I got out of the service. 1970, took a 525 to 670 by 1973, in 181. Um, so what Bill West began using, he referred to as the bench squat. Was this the, the where <clears throat> box squatting originated from for you? A big bench squat is a high box squat. Okay. All right. And then uh, they also did um, uh, different levels. Like they would do four levels. And that's what I did. I did a 17. I would take on 50 pounds, do a 15, take out 50, do a 13. Take all 50 and do three triples on an upgrade, 10 inch. Yeah. And that was my program every Friday night. And I think that's probably why I, it pushed my deadlift up by hand of walking out these heavy weights. And like I said, at 180, uh, I had no spotters and I had a power rack, so I used the pins. I walked out 805 on a, on a 17, you know, with no gear and, and box squat. And then I would sit it back on the pins, unload it. And you know, put the bar up, start over. I could I could get the others back in the rack, but I couldn't get that 805 back in the rack by myself. Yeah. Um it seemed like Bill Peanuts West developed special exercises. I he um popularized use of rack pulls, the touch system known as force reps. He called extended deadlifts or deficit deadlifts that known today. Can you just discuss a little bit more who Bill Peanuts West was and what he contributed? Well, being was Bill Peanuts West actually was the you know the main figure at Westside Barbell, and uh, yes, he started doing all these innovative methods, like you said, rack pulls, doing rack work. You know, people have done rack work, but stand on boxes. Actually, uh, and friend advocated a lot of power cleans along with, and I did power cleans as well until I broke my lower back and couldn't do the second pull anymore. Uh, but um, back when uh, Bill DeMarco had a bad back, he started doing back raises. You know, I'd never seen back raises. So, so back in the day, I had a power rack. You know, a, a hyperextension bench and dumbbells and you know and weights and that was it. Boxes, boxes. All my records are on different boxes. Like I said, 17, 15, 13, and a milk crate. My rack poles are normally on pin three, two, and one, which you know is slightly below the knee and down to two inches off the ground. And uh, my benches, I did all power rack benches as well. I did everything I did on pins. I had no spotters. If I wanted to take a weight, I would go downtown to YMCA because there's a lot of pro wrestlers and a lot of guys trained down there at the time. So I get down there, at least I'd have spotters, you know, to take a real weight off my chest. But I, I lived on power rack benches. I used uh, just lowering it down, relaxed, pressing on pins. I would do it right at my chest, right off my chest, 
couple inches above, or a couple inches above, and a couple inches above that, two pins with one workout, or heavy lockouts. And uh, and I also did another method called the Hoffman method, where I would take away, let's say, 320, press it up into a second pin and hold it in there. And then I would add a little bit of weight and continue to do it till I couldn't hold it for five seconds. And then I stopped, you know. That made me very, very strong. What was it like training the YMCA the way you did? The people follow suit or are they looking at you? What is this guy doing? No, they looked at me because they're up there at the time. A lot of martial artists, a lot of uh, karate. What the MMA, you know, the karate and boxers and judo, and then uh, and the pro wrestlers were up there. But at least there was some. Like if I took a deadlift, I would go up there as well because just so I'd have some excitement. I mean, it was me, an AM radio, and a mirror, yeah. and that was it. That's all I had. It seems, or to, I might be wrong on this, but in the 60s, Bill would write training articles for magazines. They didn't seem too popular for people at the time. Was there a reason for that? Uh, that I will know because I mean, there was small pockets of powerlifters. Yeah. They had a decent sized team from California because I'd been told years ago that California is so spread out, it's hard to get a lot of lifters in one area. And, uh, you know, over here, you had Larry Pacifico. And, Uh, you know, Bill Cino, they taught me how to bench a lot. And, um, you know, just uh, Vincent Ella was here in town or America, uh, 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 Cleveland, Ohio, world record holder in the deadlift. I talked I talked to all these guys and get there, what they were doing. I remember, I, I've said this before, but I asked Vince, I said, Vince, what makes your deadlift go up? Because he was, you know, 750, 181 back then and 821 and 198 without a deadlift bar. And he goes, anything makes my deadlift go up. And I said, man, what an asshole. But then I realized he was doing the crunching system. Yeah. Just like was how barbell was rotating exercise all the time. They didn't you know, at that point, no one had heard of the conjugate system. But bodybuilder had been using the conjugate system forever. Everybody is conjugate, everything's connected. You know, fighters use different combinations, you know, different footwork, different speeds of the punches, the whole nine yards. So it's if I look at it as very simplified, everything's conjugate. Baseball, you got fastball, curveball, change up, you know, it's all the same. No difference. I've got three other people that I want to touch on. The first is, who is Joe DeMarco? Uh, Joe DeMarco also wrote some articles, and I talked to Joe DeMarco. And Joe told me that they didn't do the four-level box squat, but it's in their article. Yeah. And that's what I did. And it was funny. But he's the one, like I said, he had a bad back. <clears throat> so instead of getting away from the area, he did uh, start doing back raises and cured his back. And he was pretty damn strong, you know, for the day. So uh, pretty innovative. Then Pat Casey, can you go over who he was and his success in the bench press? Absolutely. Pat Casey was the first uh, 600-pound bencher, 800-pound squatter in 2000 total. And Pat did a lot of power rack work as well. He did a whole lot of big climbs and, and uh, out of power racks. He would do even heavy uh, tricep extensions, all pins behind the head, French press, really heavy. Everything, a lot of partials. A lot of partials combined with full range, but a lot of it was all pins. And uh, back then, benches were so flimsy. Uh, I mean, I could buy a bench for $29, had supports right beside your shoulders, and they were made out about an inch and a half, you know, uh, round tubing, and, uh, you know, he thought things were going to fall apart. So he made his own bench. It actually was a power rack bench like we have today. Mm-hmm. He made that bench. It was super heavy duty because this guy's bench is 600 when 500 was a, a huge bench. It's huge. Why was he so ahead of his time with that bench? Or was back then a 600-pound bench was – achievable or is he ahead of his time no he's way high. he's the first guy to do it he had 617 and then um he just he was innovative you know you got to be innovative he led the way these guys led the way um i've got a you know a book coming out about someone about pat casey they're very innovative someone's got to start you know the pioneers don't never get any credit you know yeah so he was a pioneer and Wes was a pioneer and i'm sure you're going to get into george friend and so he's forth nice. and yeah but there's a pioneers of the sport The, the next person, who was George Friend and his impact on the popularity of powerlifting? Uh, well, George was a monster, you know. He, he's also the world record 156-pound hammer throw. And he, but he squatted 854. It's a bar called a Marcy bar. If you ever see a picture of like we have, the bar has been real bad. Mm-hmm. And it's a Marcy. It was real flimsy. I used one I was stationed in California. And uh, they pulled 816 deadlift as well in the 242. But he's a world record in the 242s and super heavy. They didn't have a 275 or 308. Yeah. So he had those classes. And him being an athlete, a lot of his box squats, he would sit on a box, pick up his feet, and slam it down when he came up. You know, he, he used it for uh, basically uh, power metrics and, and uh, to do the squatting. I mean, the guy was he was just a horse. 
he, I'll tell you a funny story. He, he called me on the phone one day. You know, I talked to DeMarco and that was it, but this is long, and he, but Bill, uh, a friend calls me. I cannot believe that someone from Westside Barbara called me up. I mean, I was like, it's the greatest day of my life. And I said, George, friend, what's up? And we talked for a minute. And George says to me, he says, you know, Lou, you owe me $5,000. I go, well, why do I owe you $5,000, George? He said, because you used the name Westside Barbell and I own it. And, and the story goes, I told him, well, I said, I actually own it. It's a United States trademark. As so I had my attorney send him a letter. We never heard about it. And a lot of his friends apologized. And I didn't, never thought anything ill about it. I was just thankful that George Ring called me on the telephone. Yeah. You know, because it's amazing. This guy, you know, an icon at the time, would call me on the telephone. Um, he he was the one. Uh, Bill Starr was another. I wrote an article on Bill Starr at the same time that I followed. It was almost the same stuff. If you want to deadlift, don't deadlift. And uh, Bill did uh, rack pulls, box pulls, power clean, front squat, back raises, um, you know, heavy side bends, all this stuff, high poles. But he's also a combination. Uh, he won a national, a junior national weightlifting and then a national champion of powerlifting. And, uh, but, you know, he was the same way they were innovative. And that's where I got my training in the beginning. I didn't, deadlift, if you miss a deadlift, it plays on your mind. So the best thing is, don't deadlift. You know, when I found out to be, if I broke my rack record or my box record, I, I, I got a record in deadlift. Same thing in a box spot. Um, or one time I, I was 1971, I said the national record in the squat. The next year and a half, I did not break my, I trained on 13 for my squatting, you know, for me. I did not break that record. I went to three meets and broke my record every time. And now I look back, it had to be accumulation of training. But it was the box squats made me go up, even though I didn't break my box squat record. In the meets and judging back, it was all IPF, very strict. Everybody wore blue blazers. You know, it was crazy and no gear. What do you mean no gear? Like no nothing? You couldn't wear a wrist strap. 1973, when I made my biggest total, I did 1655 and the world is too much of four, but 1635. Um, you couldn't even wear a wrist strap, but no knee wraps. They had race bandages in, just you. And uh, no power belts as Olympic weightlifting belt, but most people would wear backwards. And, uh, you know, I wore chucks, you know, started out riding chucks because that's what Wes and those guys use, and that's what I use. And, you know, in super training, and Dr. Mel Sipp said, best shoe to wear is no shoe. And a, and a Chuck Taylor is because you can put your foot out. The shoe don't go nowhere, but your foot slides in. And so, you know, yeah. you're very applicable to what we want to do. So from learning about Westside Barbell, Culver City, implementing what Bill, George, Joe, uh, Pat did, what was the transition or learning from there to the conjugate method, to finding out how the Soviets trained? Where was that transition? Okay, well, everyone back then did progressive gradual overload training. You know, there's, there's eights or tens, eight, sixes, right on down. And you go to keep, you could be strong at meat, but the problem was you were very unpredictable what you could lift. And then looking back at it, if you notice as the weights go up, uh, the reps go down, so you lose your base, you have no volume. So it's a hit and miss kind of a situation. I, I literally thought I should have squatted eight, 845 when the world record was 782, but I didn't. I did 775. And I'm now going, what the hell's going on here? And uh, I, you know, because the training was, is like the peaking, their peak was like this. Our peak is like this, you know, it's constantly yeah. up there. And um, so that was one thing that I switched. Why, why I switched over? <clears throat> and then I broke my back for the second time. And that's why I switched over to Soviet Union training because this whole training was just killing me. How did you find out about it? Um, I, uh, Bud Conlingan had books and I got them. I called Bud and Bud said, you know, these books are classroom books. And I said, that's exactly what I want. I want to learn what pure strength is, you know, all special strength. So I got the books and uh, that changed, that really changed my life because um, it just taught me what, what strength training is. I didn't know. Strength training is just how strong are you? And that's not what, that's not what really works. And, uh, and I, but I read about the conjugate system in there. Uh, Dr. Virgil uh, Shonsky and Dr. Medvedez was responsible for a lot of it. Virgil uh, Shonsky with some ways, but mostly track and field. Medvedez in weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting. And it was formed in 1972. They had uh, 70 high-skilled weightlifters at the Dynamo Club. And uh, they had between 20, or I think it was, I believe it was 20 and 45 exercises that they would use in a long, a long cycle. And at the end, uh, uh, he asked what they thought. One guy said he was satisfied. The rest said they wanted more exercise. So that's how the conscience system became. And a lot of people, uh, again, we got a book of not a conscience, but a lot of people in the conscience switched to exercise. It's also changing volumes. 
changing velocities, changing intensities of percent of a one rep max. You have to change all this, changing equipment, changing restoration, changing your eating habits, everything. Everything was changed. You know, that's what happens. It, you know, and uh, I mean, winter, winter becomes spring and spring becomes summer and summer becomes fall and then you're back to winter. And that's just the way the world works. Everything changes, constantly changes. You don't change your stuff. That's the law of accommodation. Too many people suffer from it and too hard-headed to stop. When did the light bulb go off, like the conjugate system crushes linear periodization? Well, what was your first realization? I'm never going back. Well, it actually didn't happen. And it, it, that didn't happen until 1982. When I broke my back again in 1981, I couldn't lay down for 17 weeks. And that's when I, you know, I talked to Bud and I started reading about periodization. And uh, I came up with weight periodization. You know, like if you look at your car, why does your car shift at 3,000 RPM every time it shifts gears because of optimal horsepower? Well, by that, uh, Perlipin figured there must be optimal weight you lift to develop, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. And it was for weightlifting 75, 80, and 85%. I followed in because back then the rep and powerlifters, we were all slow, which we were. And Olympic lizards were explosive, but they had little, little weights. Later on, I realized the powerlifters are slow and we had to become fast. I also found out that weightlifters in this country cannot lift slow weights. They can't lift heavy weights. They didn't, they, their strength level is not high enough, and that's what keeps them from exceeding, you know, on Olympic podiums. And it's just the opposite. They had to get, they had to get slower. We had to get faster. And by slower, I mean weights got heavier. Of course, gravity has a lot to do with that. Overcoming gravity. Outside of wave periodization, what other changes or improvements did you utilize from the conjugate system into what people are doing today? Well, I think right away you're doing a lot of spatial exercises. And uh, like, you know, because I came up and doing reverse hypers in 1973 just with a belt. And, uh, you know, we trained in the garage and in my basement. And I started doing it at that point, you know, just with a, an exercise, never a machine. Started doing those. I had one of the first glute hams in America. Dr. Fred Hatfield would say, Lou, you, you know, you got to get this ice kinetic power rack. I got an ice kinetic power rack. Had electric stem, you know, anything Fred said I got. And Fred back then talked about CAT, compensatory acceleration training. It made a lot of sense to me to accelerate all weights. You know, heavy weights, it's easy. Like Fred said, no one can lift a heavy weight slow. And he's right. You're going to try to lift the heavy weights as fast as you can. But lightweights, you'll get lazy. As you go up because of the relationship between your force and posture at the time, the weights, the resistance becomes smaller and you don't produce force. So later on, that's like, should I talk about the bands? Yeah, sure. But that's when I said, well, this cat is okay, but it doesn't really work with submaximal weights when you're doing the, the percent training. And that's when we started adding bands because you're going to have a perfect weight in the bottom and a perfect weight at top of weights. No, because the weights would be too heavy in the bottom, you couldn't get off the box. If they're too light, then at the top, you're not producing force. And the same thing with bands. If I just use bands because the shrinkage would be too light in the bottom, and the enormous amount of banner might be too heavy to stand back up. So you need a combination of method training, like it says in super training, being Mel Sip, of combinations of either chains or bands. And uh, when you start out with chains, I use chains for can I talk about yeah, yeah, yeah. chains for a year and a half before I wrote about them. Yeah. We, the whole gym just blew up everything in three meets. Then I wrote about them. Uh, and then, but then Dick Hartzell comes to town with these bands. And Dave uh, Williams at Liberty University said, Lou, I'll pay you money if you tell me what to do with these bands. I go, I don't know what you're talking about. And so Dick came to town to do a basketball seminar that week. I put those bands on my shoulders and I said, I got to have these bands. And I said, I'm going to make you famous. And I said, you'll sell a lot of bands, which I did now. You know, everyone's yeah. okay. And I, I started using those bands and it just totally changed the world. And then, but after that, then I had to realize what amount of weight and bands constitute how much he used for speed strength or explosive strength or strength speed. So then I broke it down, you know, uh, basically 50% band for explosive and it was 30 to 40% top weight, you know, with a combination of bands of about 33% for ex uh, explosive training and then speed strength, it was uh, 25 to 33%, you know, plus barbell weight to get to your arrive at 75, 80, and 85. And strength speed is when you use more band than you can lift weights. Like you got 500 pound of band, but you only lift 350. Because what do bands do? Because they accommodate resistance, they slow you down so much that the slower the velocity is, the greater force you produce. And that's how I came up with this in a large study in my gym. We've had 35 guys over a thousand pounds. A guy has me one time says, Where's your scientific evidence? I said, Well, I've got basically 100 guys to squat eight and 35 over a thousand. What do you got? 
you know, I'm the one who's got the scientific yeah. evidence. I'm going to be a scientist. So I've got three people that I want to talk about and how important they were. The first was um, Dr. Berkshansky. And second is uh, Zatsiorsky. Mm-hmm. And finally, Mel him. But how important was Berkshansky and Zatsiorsky? I mean, everything. As a matter of fact, you know, I think uh, Zatsiorsky's first book came out. I thought 92, but it might be 95. But I was doing all the instruction training, right? We were making progress, good progress. I mean, like I never dreamed. And But then when he brought out the science and practice strength training, I read it and I said to myself, man, I'm actually on track here. And then Verpachowski would pull up his writings about fundamental spatial strength, for instance. You know, that, that book right there opened up my eyes about spatial strength. It's just not strength, it's spatial strength. And, you know, if a guy wants to be explosive, he uses the wrong weights, he won't become explosive. If he wants to be maximum strength, you've got to lift some weights. You know, lift heavy weights, you will not become maximally strong. So you not you got to break these down in percentages and know what you're doing and how many lifts. And that's back to Perlin. I used his charts. And uh, he actually had some of the strongest lifters that ever lived on the face of the earth. Uh, Victor Saltz, uh, he had uh, him, a 220-pound lifter. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Saltz press, down in a full squat, in a full squat, he pressed overhead 363. That's incredible. I mean, that's one strong guy back there. And so, you know, I mean, not only did he have these graphs and he based them off a thousand people. People always say, well, you know, about, you know, ask me. I didn't come up with the stuff, but I am smart enough to use it. I use his charts because it's based off a thousand high-skilled, you know, either lifters or track and field. So I, I'm going to good enough for them. Why wouldn't it be good enough for me? I'm not going to, because in the beginning, I would kind of argue with myself for them. And I said, well, I don't know about this. But lo and behold, three or four months later, I go, damn it, right on. So I said, forget this. They got it in the print. I'm doing it. And it works. It seems a lot of people. Okay. I want to say one more thing. I just had a bunch of coaches down there. He had more coaches than I want to see in a lifetime. All right. They all showed up. I had 27 people down there. I don't know if you know. Yeah. But a guy was talking about bands and chains. He says coaches don't want to use them. And uh, Dr. Ken Lesnar, he's, he's dead. He's a good friend of mine. But he passed. He said in an article, he said, Louis Simmons never been in bands or chains. And I said, that's right. I didn't invent toilet paper. We were smart enough to use them. These people have to open their eyes. And, you know, actually, they don't experience. If you don't have, you know, you, if you've got jackasses, you're not going to run the Kentucky Derby. You've got to have racehorses and experiment with them. And that's what I had. It seems that you're the only person at the time to read all the books and realize, hey, this guy is saying one thing, it makes sense. But this guy is not saying it. And then maybe in Roman's book, he's not saying this. Well, you cross-referenced. I got the best from... What made you want to do that? I was desperate. Desperate men do desperate things. I mean, you can't read one book and think you're going to have all the answers. And that's where guys mess up. They buy one book and, you know, if you look at super training and you look at practice science, it's got both books have things that the other book doesn't have, which is amazing to me. But, you know, super training is very full, but it doesn't talk about certain things, you know. So um, I, I used all those books, the science sports training, <clears throat> and uh, those, are, and then all the Russian books, you know, pe- and people were saying about accommodating resistance. If you look at the 82 or 83 a weightlifting yearbook from the Soviet Union, it has an accommodating resistance machine in it. Yeah. You know, uh, why, why, why do you have bell squats? Because the freaking Russians have bell squats. Why do my guys, you know, the, the uh, big power lifters and people come in sports, why do they do power cleans in the bell squat machine? Because they did it. You know, monkey see, monkey do. It's basically what it is. And people just well, they just argue and argue and argue. It's just it's just amazing. And then what what they did because they had scientists working with the lifters and the athletes. Then they determined what was a perfect load, what was a perfect exercise biomechanically, and so forth. <clears throat> so it taught me that's why I've got so many patents. Someone needs a, a where we lack something. I'm going to build a machine to develop it. Like the MR19, I've had athletes. Those guys down thought that. Everyone who comes in thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Marcus Marinelli from Strong Style, he, you know, he, he thought that thing was insane. And I got a wrestler and did 50 reps on there. His eyes was crossed. <laughs> He's 50, pretty big guy, you know. And uh, But, I mean, that's what I do. I mean, you got a problem. Someone has to solve it. Oh, I got a problem. Well, you just leave it a problem? Every problem has a solution. Now, once you solve that problem, it creates another problem. And then you solve that one. And on and on and on. How important was your relationship and friendship with Mel Sid? Very important. Uh, Mel was, you know, like a typical scientific geek. You know, he's a biomechanics expert. 
But Mel hated everyone. If you don't believe me, you just asked a few of our friends, you know, and they hated everybody. So Mel saw what I was doing. He came here and he could not believe it. And so Mel came and spent a lot of time here and I did seminars with Mel. And uh, he was just fascinated by the bands. And that's why in super training is called combination method training and based off what I've done. And well, also the ice kinetic machine. And, uh, but he, he came here and that was how our relationship. And then we did seminars together. Uh, Mel was on one end of the spectrum, super educated, biomechanics expert. Me, I'm the other, a gym rat, always just a gym rat. But I applied myself towards what he did, and he was trying to apply his biomechanics expertise into what's true strength training. And it was a good combination. And, you know, I mean, I beg people to come here to do the thesis, but can't get anybody. And uh, I, I believe... And Mel agreed with me, but he died, unfortunately, before he, he, we did this. I believe by using enough band tension, you can shoot yourself down so hard that you override a goji tendon under concentric. I've seen lots of people take weights, get stuck in the bottom. We all have, right? I've never seen a person get crushed with bands. If It'll shoot you down, and it's an opposite and equal effect, you know, and you'll try to shoot yourself right back up. It's an opposite and equal so my theory was if we use enough bands and enough overspeed eccentrics, we could override the goji tendon. It's you don't even you just it's it's an instant you're gonna to respond to it. You're not gonna go, oh hell, I'm not gonna push against this. It's you're gonna respond because of the uh, elasticity in the muscle that creates such a bands bands work exactly like the muscles and ligaments they stretch and contract. So everything works in the same, you know, the same uh, uh way, and I think that's why it works so good. Again, like I say, put too much weight on the bar, you can crawl up the box and barely get to the top. If you don't have much weight on the bar, you'll jump out of the hole, but at the top, you're not developing any force. As far as actually, you can. Like today, uh, you know, big uh, Eric, he did uh, 505 and 250-pound of band, did five doubles. Now, then we put 70 more pound of band on the bar, and he did that faster than the others because that's what the body will respond to. It starts to respond that way. It's kind of like your car is fast, but then put racing gas in it, it responds better. How did your training groups um, ex or adopt or accept the new training methods initially? So when your, your training partner saw what you were doing, trying to get them to do it, did they embrace it or they like, what are you doing? Uh, they went right to it because they saw me come back from broken lower back again and mid back. And then they're going like, how in the hell is this old man lift these weights? And I, I mean, I got fast. I was lifting big weights fast. So, you know, that was the proof in the pudding for them. And that's when they jumped in and started doing it because, it, you know, one strong guy in the gym means nothing. You need an army of guys. If you got an army, then you, you got something on your hands. Are. And that's what we did. Everybody did it. They all made records. I mean, more than once at one time, I've had three world record holders in the bench, three world record holders in the squat. I've had guys hold the total records here and, you know, as simultaneously. So, and they all did the same program. Uh, you know, I was no venture, right? I had ventures. I mean, like, I don't even want to put my name with them. But I set up George Howard, Kenny Powers, and Rob Fusioner. We go to Daytona for a money meet. Kenny was in a um, 75, George T20, and Rob was 08. We broke all three world records in that meet. Now, that's tough to do. And you see in that gym, we break our own world records. Not many gyms can break their own world records with another lifter, but we did. But anyhow, long story short, because I blew my patella off in 1991, and then I, and Kenny kind of slackened, you know. And I said, Kenny, I'm, I said, I'm going to come out of retirement squad seven before we ever put bench seven again. And he says, oh, man, you'll never have seven pounds on your back again. Well, I come out of retirement right then. I did seven, eights, and nines. And uh, Kenny, but Kenny never did bench that, that record. But when I started back in the bench, I had a 530 bench. So first week back, I did 535. And well, how did I do this? The program I had for George and Kenny and Rob and Jerry Oak, 545 close rib. J.M. Blakely, like triples of 585. I set the program up, my program, exactly what they did. And uh, no one 50 had ever benched 550 pounds. You know, in the gear that we had, and I didn't get no new gear, um, I bent 600. And I'm, you know, I did it with this. I didn't do it with this. Yeah. I did it because I was smart. I learned from him. I said, if it worked for him, why, what I, why wouldn't I do it? You know, and that's what I did. And it was foolproof. Now we've had all kinds of, you know, world record ventures. I'm going to try to kick it back into the website history, but I want to discuss about your own competitive lifting um, from the 60s upwards and the changes you've seen in powerlifting. Because initially you said there's no gear, Olympic yeah. lifting weight belts. 
Can we start from there and then your progression? Well, okay, there was no gear, uh, no benchers till 1984 period. And then it's called a blast shirt. And everybody wore was like wearing a football jersey. You know, if you had one, I, I'm not going to let you wear one if I'm not wearing one. Yeah. I don't even know if they gave you 10 pounds. You know, and uh, and the suits, um, they maybe gave you 20. Span Jan, it cost $29. I mean, that was, you know, pretty cheap even back then. And it, it might have gave you 20, 25 pounds. Don't even know. I mean, it was that bad. You'd bleed in here where the uh, straps were and on your thighs, and you're going like, does this thing do anything? And uh, uh, for instance, in 1980, I squatted 765 and the world record was 782, made the third biggest total of all time. But a guy gave us a bunch of suits. They were called miracle suits. But when I got home, I looked at that suit. It had seven holes in it. Now, these suits today, you can pull tractors down the road. Yeah. You're not going to put a hole in one. So it went from polyester uh, on into eventually canvas. Ernie France was pretty innovative. He had the first canvas squat suit. Ernie also was a uh, ran a prison. And he would have prisoners take denim shirts that they wore in prison, turn around backwards, and use them for ventures. Open back, you know, and the buttons is in the back, and he did that, so he's pretty smart. And, but John Inter, meanwhile, had patents on the bench shirt, so they got a bit of a scrap of this. But Ernie had the only campus suit. So I, at the time, I just squatted. I was 52. I did 920. It's the second biggest squat in the world, only behind Eddie Cohn. Which I'm, you know, am I bragging a little bit, you know? But so Chuck Bogopol, in the very face, it was a double France polyester suit. Chuck had the same squat suit. He had 859. He gets a canvas suit and the first mate, he squats 1,000 and three weeks later, 1025 in a meet. 165 pound jump by the canvas suit. Uh, so then things just going on from there. You know, then he, where gear was uh, supportive and for safety, then it became competitive. You know, I'm going to, you know, my venture is better than yours. I'm getting it. You got a new venture? Yep, I handed it over. And so then, uh, like, a, like again, like I said, I'm just, I was an average venture, but I had the six best bench. In 2004, it was 575 in the 220s. Well, then the next year, Super Duper Phenoms came out. 650 was 10th. Now, okay, you just got, and I, I got a shoulder at that time. I got to replace the shoulder replacement. You had to accept this, right? Because that's the way it was. And uh, now there's a new shirt called a band shirt. All right. And our, we, and, uh, you know, uh, Coker, Jason Coker had the biggest, uh, the best pound for pound bench of all time. 900 to 198. And um, uh, Rob Farrell, he puts one of these banchers on and missed 1,198. So you, these guys, you're going to you know, accept what's going on or you're going to pull out of powerlifting. But that's what powerlifting has done is the innovative methods with the For you, we're way behind everybody. You know, you got better baseball bats, better balls, you know, better uh, golf clubs, better golf surfaces. Better tracks for sprinting. Most of them are made for sprinters, not distance. Um, you know, football turf and all this stuff. You you got to go with the program. I mean, you know, like I said, don't don't take a knife to a gunfight. Mm -hmm. If they got them, you got to use them. I never I never made rules. I I don't follow. Them. So that's that's where we are today with this crazy shirt now. And uh, you know, the the squad suit so far has been about the same for about you know a few years. You think gear can go too far? Absolutely. I think uh, I would personally. Like I said, I don't dictate. I, I've never said y'all do this, but I'd like to see ventures eliminated and just keep the squat suit for safety for the low back and the hamstrings and is for deadlifting and squatting and just bench roll. Because, I mean, uh, 20 years ago, I mean, I've had over 50 guys roll bench over 600 in my gym, and now I got one, and he's a monster, but I got one? What the hell happened? I should have 30, you know? I got one. And the guys, are just, they rely on equipment. Instead of getting stronger, they try to buy a bench, a bench or a squat or a deadlift with a deadlift suit. You know, we didn't even have that. Eddie Cohn pulled 901 deadlift at 220 without a deadlift bar. You know, so it just gives you an idea. I mean, I believe if he'd had a deadlift bar like a couple of you guys, I, I would say on that, I probably 960. You know, he probably yeah. pulled 960 to 220s if he had a deadlift bar. You know, you'd use a regular bar. And, you know, I know the Russians will train for a regular bar and you go to me and pull on a, on a, uh, a deadlift bar. How special was Ed Cohn as a lifter? Uh, Eddie, Eddie Cohn was one of the strongest human beings I've ever seen. I always, you know, I'll never criticize, I analyze. His form wasn't that great, but he was brutally strong. I mean, he may be the, probably the strongest person I've ever seen. I never saw Paul Anderson. Yeah. And, uh, you know, only on film. But, I mean, the people that I've seen, if you want to talk about pure muscular strength, 
on a biopsy probably, Eddie would be the strongest. Mike Grizzlies is incredibly strong, but he had great form. And he made waist look fake, where Eddie, you know, looked like a movie grinding him up. I heard a story when we're down in York about when Eddie got injured, you're the first person up, even though you guys competed against each other, you're the first person out to help him. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, I sent him a sled. I told him how to repair his knee, and he, he did repair his knee, you know? And then, uh, I mean, it's like, you know, competitors, I, I never competed with anybody. I competed with myself. I, I learned years ago, I had a metaphysics teacher in, in the 70s. And because I go to meets, listen, I was going to meets with the world record holders in the bench, squat, and the dead up in the total in Ohio. I lived in the meet in Canton, Ohio. In the top 10, there was six in the in the top 10. And I got third in that meet. And how well, how did I do it? Because I used to have suffer a little bit of anxiety, you know, lived against these, these guys, the guys I'm reading about. And, well, I learned it was only me. I don't worry about nobody else. I never have. And, I, I mean, I basically use a Zen approach. You know, I just, it, like I say, it's one with the arrow. To me, it's one with the bar. And it doesn't matter. You put your hand, like a fight. It doesn't matter if somebody touches you. know, you can say what you want, do what you want. But until you, they put hands on you, you put hands on them. When I grabbed that bar, it was on. And it was just natural. It was natural. I mean, as weights got bigger, I strained harder. That's the only thing I did. It seems back then people were more open to share ideas for the betterment of the sport compared to today. Everyone seems to like be more at odds with each other. But back then, everyone just trying to get better. Yeah, they don't realize they're trying to run their own sport. That's that's not good. And then a lot of people, like Eddie, brought up to me. I talked to Eddie a couple months ago, and he brought up a point that I I see, but I didn't think about. He said most good guys today are single lift lifters. It's either deadlift or the bench. You know, it's not the total. That one guy was Dan Blue, maybe, down until like 26 roll. That's, that's a hell of a total, you know. Blood here squatted 1157 roll. But most guys it's, it's are single lift lifters, and it's, you know, need to be a powerlifter. It's called powerlifting. You know, if you're a golfer, you can't just use a driver. you got to use a putter, yeah. right, and a wedge and all this, you know. What made you want to open a gym? A private gym? Private gym first. We can talk with the public later on. But private well, gym. okay. Private, well, because uh, I was here, they write about me in Powerlifting News and then, uh, and then Powerlifting USA started. They had, uh, I, I think it come out every, like a Powerlifting newsletter. Well, I was here in Columbus, Ohio, of course. So my buddy Gary, Gary Sanger comes and Jimmy Seitzer, he met him and people knew who I was, even though it wasn't a lot of print because back then it wasn't like it is today. Yeah. So they, they came down and it was just guy after guy after guy. In, in, my, in a two car garage, in my garage, we won the, the national championship. A two-car garage. Was that a two-part question? Was the, I was like, what made you want to open up the gym? Well, I, I reason I wanted to have guys come, I wanted to prove to people that what I did works. It worked for me. Why wouldn't it work for someone else? And now I proved it beyond a doubt. You know, this, you know, these guys are talking to, you know, Jared down there, explosive mechanics, and they, guys coming tomorrow, some black kid, real crazy here, does a tremendous job of you know, one thing I wanted to do, and I actually accomplished this, um, I got guys that use this system for young kids, and they are doing phenomenal jobs because I prefer not to live. I don't want kids. I don't even care about athletes. I'm, I'm an absolute guy. I, I want the biggest lifts, the fastest running time or the biggest lifts. I don't want to train football players that, you know, to make them strong but not the strongest. Yeah. You know, I, I want to – I'm an absolute guy. Like, you know me with cars. I want the fastest figure draw I get my hands on, right? When did you first officially have Westside Barbell? Officially, yeah. it, it was um, officially without a name or with trademark trademark. No, officially without like without trademark name. Like well, I was calling it that in, in the early 1970s because Fred and those guys died early. And, you know, Fred, I think, died in 71 or 2. So I, I lived on the west side of town, so I called it Westside Barbell. I never had church or anything. Yeah. Uh, and and then um, I you know I trademarked the name in 1986. I incorporated in 87, is that right? And then uh, that's when we started making merchandise and sleds and all this. And like 1992, that's when I uh, started patenting on my first reverse hybrid. So things like that. So, where uh, but I just wanted to prove that I had methods that, that worked. Where was the first original West Side? In my like, garage. Your garage. Yeah. Where, where was that located at? Uh, 590 Larkham Avenue. Now, Kevin, Kevin Akins trained there. They brought it, Tom Pellucci brought him in, a good friend of mine. Hey, prior first 800 pound debtor and told Kevin, said, Kevin, you will train here. 
you will not drain a high state, you know, for the weights. Yeah. And Kevin, and now this was in the 80s, and Kevin still holds the shop at regular high state setting with it. You know, Joe Kovacs trained in here, you know, yeah. before. I mean, uh, so many people come through. I worked uh, about a year ago with the, the last Olympics, the silver medals in the long jump. You know, working on acceleration. We, we work on all kinds of different things. You know, I, I don't make it, I don't tell people, I don't have to tell people. You know what I mean? How many people, I was going to say to you, how many people mention our name? Lots. Uh, lots. You hear me mention, I don't mention many names. No. Because <laughs> they don't have any credentials. Like I said, I talk about Jarrett and these other guys, even Rick Sharp, Poland, guys like that. I mean, you know, I think sometimes I think they're out of their mind, but they get results, and that's all it counts. If you're sending kids to school full rides, more power to you. Because I just, I'm not done. You know, I don't want to. You got me too busy writing books and stuff like that. Sleeping. Yeah, allegedly writing books. Um, when did you first form a powerlifting focused training crew? As if to go out and prove, okay, we have this theory on a well improved. And would, who were they? It would be 1976. Uh, it, it, it would be uh, Bill Whitaker, Gary Sanger. Tim Gallagher, Tom Pellucci, Doug Heath. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Seitz was a bodybuilder, you know, punk yeah. ass little bodybuilder, but became Mr. USA. And as well, I worked with Mike Francois years ago. And uh, so I would be, that would be the crew right there. I don't want to get too much of it because I know a lot of it in your new book, The Iron Samurai, yeah. goes through that. But I think for people to know that there was such a diverse group of people that out of that garage became champions. Oh, yeah. But it's funny, back then, most of them was PhDs. They, they were getting our PhD. And, you know, then the, the next kind of a group I had was guards and prisoners and prison guards. <laughs> it, it, everyone has the same, you know, goal. It doesn't matter what your background is. I found that out. They can work side by side. It doesn't matter. A PhD can work with a guy that's uh, digging ditches tomorrow. And because when they're in that gym, they got one goal. If they don't have that goal in my gym, then they're gone. Where did the logo of Nitro come from? All right, that's a good question, uh, and, but it's, it's a very valid one because Nitro is my first pit bull, and he would always go out in the gym, and he'd get in Matt Gimble's gym bag, and Matt said, man, you're, you're making my gym bag smell. And I said, no, you're making my dog smell. <laughs> and uh, But he'd be out there for all the rock and roll, you know, Black Sabbath and all this stuff. He'd sleep in that gym bag, and he'd sit out there next to that power rack, all that noise. And uh, so one day on a Sunday, you know, I was going to go out and do a little bit of stuff. I walked out, and I saw him laying out there upside down. So I was out there. Sleep, well, he's dead. He died. He died in the gym. So I decided to make a logo. Uh, a guy down the street here, Marty's tattoo, he made the logo for me. I trademarked it. So every time one of these people buy one of my shirts with that dog logo, you're taking my dog to the gym. That's very important. It is to me. You know, I mean, that dog, well, you're wearing a shirt right there. It's, it's, so are you. I mean, it's that's what this gym's based off of. Just like, just like the samurai. Choose the ball, choose the sword. You take your pick. You choose that ball. Get the hell out. I don't need you. Can I talk about a few of the the many names that came through here in powerlifting? And then I want to get off powerlifting because a lot of people don't know the amount of other athletes that came through. Mm. But um, we got a lot of questions about um, Kenny Patterson when he started. Can you discuss a little bit about who he was and what he achieved when he was here? Yeah, uh, Kenny lived right behind me. My first gym is actually a commercial gym. A guy owed me money in a suntan bed business. So I thought, well, if I go into this business, maybe I'll get my money. I had a bone in gym. You know? yeah. But so Kenny lived right behind us and his father died at 14. So his mother came in and said, Would you bring would you bring this kid in? I said, Yeah, you bring him in. This little, this little some guy had arms that big when he's 14 years old. And uh, so I brought him in and then he trained just like everybody else, five percent. You know, I mean he could do an bench like 150 pounds. They did exactly what we do. So he learned the system from the very beginning. And then at 21 years old, he was a world, breaking world records, breaking world and beating world record holders. Mm -hmm. uh, Tukarski, we went to Chicago, Bernie France, he had the world record 712 in the bench. You know, this what the church was back then. Kenny bench 7, 716 out there, beat Tukarski heads up. We go to the America's uh, Bash for Cash in um, Texas. John Henson put it on $10,000 worth of prizes and a doom buggy. And our Anthony Clark is down there. So we get done, they awarded Anthony a thing. I said, hey, Kenny wasn't saying, can you, can you beat Anthony? Heads up, Kenny was, was the bad man. 
And then him and George would trade a best coefficient bench back and forth with Dave Waterman at the time, who looked like a Mr. America, you know. And uh, it, was, it was such a pleasure going to meet with these guys. So then when Rob Fusey came in, what I did, I put Rob with George Guinea. What did he do within two years? Break the world record in the bench. Is how important was George and his impact towards the bench development here? Very, because I told you when I mean we we're talking about band tension here. George would have would measure every would count every length on a chain. I was thinking about that. Yeah. He measured all the bands, you know, to, you know, at the in the brackets and lockout and all that. That's how I came up with all these numbers. And by then those numbers, and I found out what worked and what 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 it was building strength speed. Or, we don't work our guys don't work on exposed strength much. It's speed strength or maximal strength. Uh, but that's how we use those, that process, what George came up with uh, to do it. And, uh, you know, funny story, he came here, he had concrete blocks for pecs. He kept tearing his uh, pecs. I said, George, you got to get your arms stronger than your pecs. So, and I said, and we tried, we told him how to use your triceps, but stretch the bar to a few things. I was like, it took two years and all of a sudden he finally got it. To this day, we don't know who or where he got it from. I mean, it, it, it's a puzzle. George don't even know, but he got it and he broke up. If I recall, he broke three records at 98 and then uh, three at 220. This isn't a meet in a row. And then two, two, four, two, eight in a row. Only Mike McDonald that I know have ever done anything remotely like that. So a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes, some amazing things have been done in that gym. Do you have anyone to stand out between uh, Kenny and George Enfin? that no one has saw, but you thought that is absolutely amazing. A few things. I mean, it is, you know, beyond, inside comprehension, Kenny benched inside the ring 640 raw, George 625 and 230. And uh, one thing Kenny did, uh, Crush Newman University uh, uh, came here to their coach, Dave, uh, Dan, um, and he, he came here and he asked me some questions. The day after the Arnold, Kenny benched in the Arnold, right? So he asked me, he said, can I say something to the team? The Lord knows what I said. I said something stupid. So I said, Kenny, can you do something to psych him up? Yeah. Now, this is a day after the arm, right? So Kenny goes, okay. So he, we load up 455 pounds, right? Cold. The smooth part of bar, he comes in two fingers, and he did two, 10 reps with it. That was amazing. Chuck Vogelpool um, was 640-pound of band tension. He parallel box squatted 835. And I'm going like, this is impossible. I'm sitting, I watched it, but I'm like, this can't be. It's impossible. I'm adding weight. I added weights. I don't know how many times. It was 835 pounds. And then he did 885 like that. Chuck had, it was a combination of super powerful and very strong. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys are powerful, explosive, powerful. Some are strong. He had a boat. I mean, and it's just like, not even like a struggle when he did these weights. It was incredible. But again, it was that overspeed eccentrics, you know, and it helps to do this stuff. People, people, they need, I always tell people, he said, Louis, what book should I buy first? Basic physics. Newton's laws of motion. And you know, people, you guys ever heard of that? Kind of comes in handy when you're lifting weights. Yeah. You know, know what gravity is. You know, know what velocity is. Know, know what kinetic energy is. So I think that helps. <clears throat> um, then you have a lot of characters came in. You had Mark Bell. You had Dave Tate. How did they blend in with everyone? Like, what was their roles in the gym? And uh, well. Mark was a funny guy. You know, he tried to be a wrestler. You know, he tried to get pro wrestling. He was a good training partner. But my main training partner was Dave Tate and, and, and Chuck Vogelpool, actually, like, for squat. Yeah. And uh, Chuck was like a, a laborer. It's like digging ditch. You know, come on, we got to dig 300 feet of ditch today, you know, or, you know, just to make lunch money. And then Dave was the biggest cheat and liar I have ever trained with. He would, you know, your box is too high, and, you, you know, you owe me a rep. Or have you seen my wrist strap and they'd be on his arm? You know, I mean, he was always trying to cheat somehow. And but so between the two of them, made training unbelievably good. And I, I give, I've done this many times. I give those guys credit for what I did. Those two, particularly in the squat and deadlift, you know, yeah, because they pushed and pushed. I mean, like Dave said many times, he, he says he tried to kill me, and I tried to kill him. Oh, uh, you know, I would say one day I, I, I called him because I said, man, is this bothering you? Because we were testing out. That's why days we got replacements. Yeah. Because we overdid the bands. So I said, is this stuff bothering you? Oh, not about me. So I called his house. And I said, hey, man, it's Dave Barry. And his wife, Tracy, said, oh, he's in the hot dog right now. He can barely move. Oh, that son of a bitch. <laughs> but we never would admit it, see. And uh, to this day, 
But I mean, we pushed like he would not. Be, we went all over the country, but those guys was really good. And then you know, I, I had so many characters in the gym, but those two guys, I don't know that big of because one was a so tall. We were all hard workers. Yeah. But if it wasn't for them, I'd have never done the weights that I did over fifty years old. I mean, they gave me no slack. They were twenty years younger than me, and all bigger than me. So, when did uh, Dave Hoff come on the scene? Dave, Dave Hoff came there. He's fifteen years old. Um, they brought him in. Chuck brought him in, if I recall. And I, you know, right off the bat, I see this kid's a little different. And uh, when he was seventeen, he benched five fifteen, and then he ended up about twenty. He's benching eight fifteen. Now he's you know he's done a ten forty one bench, and but he uh, he just ruled he was he's different he's um, whatever the word is you know he'll get a calculator and he'll do these numbers and look Lou if I do this and this and this I'll total that and he'll go right out and do it and um, I tell a story one time we come off a meeting it's very important to get the numbers on that board that board is the gym I mean that board is a gym those, I don't give a damn if you die they're not putting your number up but he come back he make records and he. He's, I'm doing uh, abs, down abs, and I look over there and he's, he's staring at the board. He's like this, he stares at the board, stares at that board. Finally, th- and he raises something and stares at the board, raises something else, then he gets a piece of chalk and he starts. Had to take him 20 minutes to change the number on the board. And, I, and I'm going like, this guy, there's something up there, you know? And he was like, um, what would it be, a savant? I don't know what yeah. he was. But I mean, he's got the body, but his mind is, he's got a mind in no one's head. He is exactly the guys I'm writing about in his book is coming out. Eddie Cohen, you know, Eddie Cohen, him, Frankel, um, um, you know, um, all of them. They all had this special thing. And because I, you know, no one had been six, but Pat Casey you know, was the first to do it. Paul Anderson doing things in the 50s that is crazy today. I got a picture of him squatting 1160 in a, in a gym trunk, you know, yeah. and in this in round, Late fifties or something, it's insane. Mike Bridges the same way. Mike come up to me. I lived in the seventy-seven actually. She comes to me and got the jacket over fifty patches. And he goes, "Hey, you Louis Simmons?" Huh? I said, "Yeah." He goes, "I'm Mike Bridges." So I'm gonna break the world record in the bench day. I look at him and go, "Oh, well, good." I said, "Whose little brother's is?" You know, one hundred forty-eight pounder. He goes out and bench three hundred eighty-five pounds. He's I think he's seventeen years old. He'd already set the world record in the bench. And I'm going like, "What the hell?" And he went on a rampage like you would, just like Eddie did. You would not believe him, him and Mike. They went on a lifting rampage. It was just sick with, you know, the heart of any gear. Mike didn't have ventures, you know. Eddie didn't like any kind of gear. He, he wore crap gear. I told Eddie one day, I said, Eddie, you know, they're not going to ask you what you wore. They're going to ask you what you lift. But he didn't want, you know, tough, restricted gear. He, he liked just crap. So. Can you go over the raw strength? developed in the gym. I don't mean like raw, raw, like no gear, but just the power these guys have and some of the most um, impressive things you've seen, especially with the deadlift. The deadlift is booming everywhere right now, but I don't think people realize how many 800, 900 pound deadlifts you have here and what they've done with no gear or the power racks. Yeah. You have people over a thousand do stuff. Well, our second biggest deadlift was raw. Uh, we have four guys over 900 in meets and 30 over 800. And, um, um, you know, Spiegel, Chris Spiegel was six foot ten and stiff like nine fifteen easy. And in our in, on our racks, the side racks, if a, if a, a good sized guy, but they pull up pin three, they normally can deadlift. All right, so he pulled nine fifteen. He went to meet and he smoked up nine fifteen. He ended up pulling nine seventy on pin three, and then he went to get married and never came back. But there was my thousand pound deadlifter. The same thing with Jake Norman. Uh, Jake came out trained. I won't say where for a year. About 60 miles away, 840 deadlift. That was it. He trained here 14 weeks, pulled 900. It went 297. And uh, this is the very same thing. He could have been a 1,000-pound deadlift. He locked out on, on his knees. He's 6'7". And, um, you know, it's very interesting. Like, people ask, how do I how do I know you get a weak back or how do I know you got a weak leg? Well, you know, right before he pulled his 9, uh, we ha- we put the plates on 4-inch mats, the plates. He barely could pull 810. But he goes to meet and smokes nine because by raising that up, we took his leg drive away. That's things we know. That's what happens. You put weights on the box or you stand on the box. You know, you can really show the deficit and strength a person has, you know, by their posture. And that, that's what we know that people, a lot of people don't have a clue. I mean, they don't even consider it. 
I've got, that's all I want to get through today. Once you've got other stuff you want to add on and conclude on? Well, it's just been a great experience of my life, you know, lifting here. So I hope it goes on for a few more years. Yeah, I don't, I think that's one thing too, Lou, that people don't understand and you should get way more credit for, but you don't give a fuck about credit anyway because you have your own board. But literally the gym is your life. That's, yeah. that's the, been at home, been anywhere, vacations, you have none of that. The gym is literally your world and then that, that is it. How is that the way it's always been, or did you realize, hey, this is this is the world that I feel comfortable. I don't want to go anywhere else. I was a little kid. I want to be a strong man, and that's never changed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I might be like my dog. I might be. I might die. My legs and arms straight up, but I'm going to die in the gym, brother. So I just enjoy when guys now, like everybody, runs their mouth. But in the last 16 months, we broke 12 all-time world records. Yeah, but, yeah. But it, not, it's not even powerlifting. You've had Joe Kovacs in here, a silver medalist in the yeah. You've had the, the Butch, 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 and Mo Robinson, gold in the 400, yeah. all kind of people. I trained a guy, um, uh, used to box on HBO. His name was Stevenson, um, a heavyweight, light. He was light, but he was a heavyweight. And all kind of guys, you know. So, and then I trained Kevin Randall when he was yeah. here, UFC heavyweight champion. And you trained the coaches who trained the guys, too. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, a, that's a big thing. What the who's who of strength coaches have. Come in oh. and out or been in the gym. A lot of money in the belt. Yeah. I don't take a lot of credit because these yeah. guys are doing it, but you know, I, I, Joey Batson's been a coach as I've known since like 1990. He's still a Clemson. You know what I mean? These guys, they do a good job and, you know, they love what they do and I'm glad they love what they do because that's just the way it is. I mean, I, all I want to see is perfection. I want to see more and more and more. People don't get it. I think, you know, I have to be, I, I'm not the person I was 20 years ago in my brain, because if I was, I would have no one in my gym. Yeah. <laughs> I had monsters in my gym, you know? And now it just seemed like it, you know, talent, we need more talent. It's hard to find a guy come here who's got talent. Marcus Marinelli says the same thing about the fight game. Yeah. You know, you can't find a guy that just wants to rip your, your ears off. And I, I don't know why, you know, what's going on in our society. I have no idea. But I mean, you know, I'm the first guy to breakfast, you know, this morning. I'm over here at 20 after 4, 20 after 4, because the group starts at 5. You know, then I got, my board brings in a group. I had a group from Virginia that I didn't know. And then I had about, oh, I must have been 12 coaches in there. You know, way too many people at one time. But, yeah. but you got to accommodate them. And that's what I, it's my job. But that's got to give you some sort of <clears throat> satisfaction that these people are coming and they want to learn and they want to, like, to give respect to all the training groups and all the information you've put out. Because not just the information, it's all the generations of lifters that have trial and error to get right. at today. And because uh, we get visitors every day, all week. I'm a fair, I'm a far better student than I am a coach. I learn. People don't learn. I mean, they don't, don't want to learn. I they don't listen or I don't know what it is. But I learn, you know, from guys. I watch guys and go, oh my God, this stuff works. Like I said, we, we deal with these experiments. You know, I'd have this group do that and this group do this. I go, well, can that? I mean, that's not working. This is working. We're doing this. And, every, and that's what everybody would migrate to what works. And that's why we, we did so well. We won the APF seniors, 93, 4, 5, 6, and 7, from Ernie France, who claimed, you know, said, Francis has a world's strongest power team. Yeah. We just dominated. You know, that's hard to do when you're going in their, their backyard with, you know, with them. But we did. And like I said, we go, every time we go, I don't know when the last time we had Burger World Record. Now, next meet, we're going to, you know, I mean, I had a guy, uh, Jeremy Smith. He just squatted 700 at 122. Lightest man to ever squat 700. And he benched 500. All right. And now in a couple of weeks, uh, Heidi Howard, we expect her to squat actually 705 at 148. The lightest one ever squat 700. A lot of people said that Heidi could not be a 148. They told her that and he told me that. Well, that's uh, not, you don't tell me that. And I was okay because we we both took it very very personal. I take things personal. Well, now she's um uh, she's a world record horse. She's uh, pushed that record from fifteen sixty five to sixteen fifteen. And this meet we expect her to go about sixteen fifty or sixteen with no problems. And you know that's what I do. I mean everything is a project for me. I've got a kid just come in, Garrett. You know uh, I want the forty eight record. Our, our deadlift record in forty eight sucks five fifty five. I want that record moved off that board. 
So that kid is here for one purpose, you know, he's he moved here from Connecticut. And I want that record, you know, then we goes because I said my goal is to get you up in the low sixties at least in the one forty eights before we got to respect them deadly up there. And uh, so I've always got goals. I've always got, you know, goals. I guess that's what it is, straight goals. Luke, appreciate the time and look forward to next week. Thank you very much. What's that rules? <laughs> I heard you.